You're listening to the Pastor Chat Podcast, a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Dadeville. Welcome. This is episode 10 of the Pastor Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Forrest Jones. And I'm Zach Brown, youth pastor. And I'm Ben Hayes, senior pastor of this uh, mighty group. <laughs> <laughs> and we are glad to have you back after last week off. I know you probably enjoyed being away from us for a little bit. You know, it's not so much being away from you guys as just uh, being away. Um, I, I did miss uh, y'all when I watched the uh, worship service. I did miss you when I uh, listened to the podcast and uh, heard the comments about how happy you are that I was not here. <laughs> that really penetrated my heart uh, deeply, I should say, yes. Well, in our defense, it was Zach that said that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump right in. We're talking about uh, spiritual warfare, which is a subject that a lot of people maybe aren't comfortable with that idea. They, that's not something we like to think a lot about. Um, but I thought you did a great job breaking it down yesterday. So if you can give us a rundown of kind of how you covered that. Yeah, it, this is a tough issue because... Um, Southern Baptists, we, we don't talk about spiritual warfare um, hardly at all. And I think that's because we are hesitant to go to the extremes on this issue. And anybody who has uh, read Frank Peretti's work on uh, uh, spirit, um, what's this piercing present darkness. darkness and piercing the darkness. Yeah, yeah we yeah. read those in Christian school. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you uh, have read those, you have seen the one extreme. And uh, then on the other hand is uh, us good Southern Baptists who are at the opposite extreme. Uh, C.S. Lewis, and I, I read this quote again today, and, and I can't remember it exactly, but it is uh, a paraphrase of something that he brought out in the screw tape letters. Um, you know, we either see demons behind every tree, behind every instant, behind every sickness, behind every problem, or we don't see them at all. And, and the truth is that it's somewhere in between. And so I wanted to talk about the the state of our nation uh, in, in the in line with uh, the concept of spiritual warfare. We've all seen the memes on Facebook. It's it's not a matter of skin. It's a matter of sin. It's not a matter of race. It's a matter of grace. And as trite as those cliches might be, there's truth in them. Uh, the issues that we're having uh, dealing with, with race, they're spiritual issues. The issues that we're having even with this COVID-19, even though there are physical uh, ailments involved here, uh, a lot of the the uh, animosity and frustration is a spiritual issue. And there's a good passage that we dealt with that illustrates this. In Luke chapter 22, it's the story of, of uh, Peter uh, when Jesus confronts him and tells him that Satan has desired to sift him as wheat. And that uh, that phrase leaves a lot for us to understand because we don't deal with this in, in our 21st century American culture. But uh, for those of you who are aware of what that means in, in terms of the, the culture of the day, to sift means to put through a sieve. That's literally the meaning. And when they sifted wheat, they would put the, the wheat on a, a hard uh, ground, on a rock, and they would beat it with a flail. 
And, and literally what Jesus was saying to, to Peter, and uh, we'll talk about this in just a minute to the other disciples, that Satan had asked to beat him up, to tear him down, to use whatever means necessary to destroy his faith and to destroy him. It's, it's almost reminiscent of uh, the story of Job as, as what, uh, what comes to mind. But then uh, when Jesus told Peter this, he wasn't just talking to Peter. He was talking to all of the disciples because the word you is, is plural there. And, and I think that even beyond the 12, beyond the, the 120 faithful in the upper room that night, beyond the, the 500, I think that you see that, that these words are true as it comes down generation after generation, that Satan has a desire to sift all of God's uh, children uh, like this. And, and the problem is that we allow it to happen. Um, the Bible tells us clearly that uh, there's no weapon formed against us that will stand. Now, the weapon will be formed, but it will not stand. The Bible tells us that there is, is no temptation that comes upon us with which God doesn't either provide the strength to withstand or a way to escape that temptation. It's all coming down to our choice. Now, you add into this mix that Jesus tells Peter in the same breath when he says, Satan has desired to sift you. He tells Peter, I've prayed for you, but you're going to fail. You are going to fail. You're going to fall flat on your face. You're going to fail the test. Uh, and, and, and that's true for all of us. We, we can't be overly critical of Peter. We, we do fail. We do stumble. We do fall on our face. We, we mess up just like Peter did. And the good news is that God has a plan for restoration and to use us after that. But that's the rest of the story. So as we're talking about this, I looked at this this passage and uh, pulled out six what I call symptoms of satanic sifting and just run through them real quickly. Uh, first is arrogance. And, and that's one of the things that, that hits all of us. You see it in, in Peter. He uh, compares himself to all the other disciples in the other gospels. And he says, look, Everybody else is going to fail you, Jesus, but not me. And we have a tendency to be that way for ourselves. We, we have this, this sin of pride that creeps into our lives, and, and all of a sudden we don't think we need anybody's help, not even God's help. And uh, that's, that's evidence that Satan is, is truly working to, to come against us and to get into our hearts and minds. And then there's the sin of assumptions. And that's, that's because in our arrogance we think that we've got the the. Uh, the market cornered on truth. We think that we know exactly what everything means, that we have the answers to everything, just like with the disciples. They listen to Jesus and they they misunderstood. He's telling them they need to be prepared for what's about to come. And they are are thinking, hey, you know, we've got to get money. We've got to get swords. We've got to fight this battle. When uh, everything that Jesus had taught them was was not about doing physical battle, but in was all about loving people. And then there's the third symptom, which is is apathy. And you see that in the disciples falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane instead of praying. And I think this is probably one of the besetting sins of the church today because we um, we say that we care. We say that we are concerned. We say that we want to make a difference. But the truth is we're not doing the things that are necessary to make the difference. We are indifferent to the things that are going on in the world. If you don't believe me, you're not going to like this, but if you don't believe me, uh, when was the last time you did anything to stand against abortion? Uh, when was the last time you decided to stand up for adoption? When was the last time that you you took a stand on the Word of God? Not not on Facebook, not, not, not on social media, 
but you really did something that that made a difference in the life of an individual who's going through some of these things. And then, of course, there's anger, and and anger is one of those things that that gets a hold of us because of bitterness in our lives, or or we respond to to this uh, outside stimuli stimuli that that comes against us, just like with Peter. When uh, the mob comes, he grabs the sword and immediately cuts off the the ear of the high priest servant. Now, you think about that. Did, did Peter really think that he was going to uh, defeat the entire mob and set Jesus free? Well, of course not. He was just reacting, and, and he was reacting wrongly, just like most of us do when something happens. Uh, what, what Jesus wanted was him to be loving and forgiving, but instead he responded in anger. And a lot of that anger comes from fear. And that that gripped the disciples there in the garden because they were surrounded by these soldiers that had swords and clubs. And uh, so they literally ran for their lives because they were afraid. The problem is that in, in our culture today here in America, we don't have to worry about those things. People are not attacking us physically, not yet, at least, uh, because of our Christianity. And yet we still shrink back and we refuse to take a stand on uh, things that are right. And then finally, the the ultimate sifting is, uh, I call it defeat, because you see it in the denial of Peter. He denies Jesus three times that night, not because he's being put on trial by the Sanhedrin, not because he's being uh, confronted by the, the uh, soldiers, but because a little servant girl comes up to him and says, hey, aren't, aren't you one of his disciples? And, and that begins the process. And so three times Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. And, and lest we be overly critical, we need to remember that we do the same thing. Now, probably have never told anybody, I'm not a Christian. You probably never told anybody, you, you're not, I, I'm not in a relationship with Jesus. You, you probably never told anybody that, that you don't love God. But the problem is by our actions and our inactions, we do exactly that. By the words that we use or or the words that we don't use, we do exactly that. We put ourselves in places that we shouldn't be, doing things that we shouldn't be doing, saying things we shouldn't be saying. And all the while, we're, we're holding on with one hand to our relationship with Christ and with the other hand, holding on to the world. And what Jesus says is, I want you to be for me or against me. Don't, don't be indifferent. Don't be in the middle. Don't try to keep both. He says, because I'll just spew you out if you do that. And then I finished up the message by talking about some of the things we need to do. And, and we'll talk more about that next week. But uh, we, we need to pray. We need to resist the devil. And we need to commit ourselves to doing the work of the kingdom. Because only when we do those things are we going to overcome these symptoms of satanic sifting. And coming into this one, so, you know, when the middle of the week, you know, I, I helped build the slides for the, the family service. And so when I when you sent me this PowerPoint and I saw the first thing of spiritual warfare, obviously that's something that, you know, you never really know how it's going to go because there are so many different kind of camps of what people believe about spiritual warfare. And you've got these churches that, that some churches think that, you know, they've got, you know, while they have a, a huge God, they've got little a little nothing Satan who is completely powerless, who doesn't really do anything, who's just completely distant. And then you've got other people like in, in other churches that have this this great big idea uh, of of what the devil is of, of this you know super powerful being who who is powerful and trying to 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 do all of this stuff to us while we have a God that is kind of in check with him but but really getting into to how you talked about it um 
it wasn't necessarily from a place of what a lot of us would think about spiritual warfare, like the idea of, you know, if you've gone and seen all the exorcist movies and the, the spinning heads and all that kind of stuff, it was really a lot more about the individual wars that, that we face on a spiritual level. Um, not so much, like I said, this big idea that Satan is this puppet master who is, who is controlling us. But, um, but you talked a lot about, you know, personal sins and the way that that applies to it and, and highlighting that stuff with, with Peter. Um, you gave us, you know, these different symptoms of this with Peter. Um, and, and I know, I, I hadn't really thought about it like this specifically in these these little areas, but it it wasn't a matter of necessarily a, a huge wrecking ball thing. A lot of these symptoms are are very small, little things that that really kind of add up into this big ultimate defeat. Yeah, and I don't want to come across as as saying that that the big picture of um, spiritual warfare is is not there. Uh, I actually believe that there are people who are completely possessed by Satan. I believe like the story in, in the New Testament where the demoniac was out in the, the cemetery cutting himself and, and running around naked and breaking chains. You know, I, I believe that there are some people who are in our mental institutions today who are probably going through a demonic possession and could be set free through spiritual uh, warfare. Uh, that's why the the Catholic Church is is looking for priests who are willing to be trained as exorcists. Now, I, I don't know that anybody's head has ever spun around. I don't know that anybody has projectile vomited like they show in in the the movies on Hollywood, in in Hollywood. But I do know that demonic uh, oppression, demonic possession is real and that it affects people from children to adults. I've seen it in in so many instances. But we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we don't make Satan too big because we need to understand God is all-powerful and Satan is not. And the Bible says that God has given to us the authority to stand in the name of Jesus under the blood of Jesus. I, I love the passage in Re Revelation chapter 11 that talks about the uh, the Christians, uh, the, the martyrs, and says they have overcome him by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. And that is exactly what happens. Do you guys, are y'all old enough to remember Carmen, the, the singer? Not Carmen, our secretary, but Carmen, the singer. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that's always stuck out to me that, that Carmen said, and I think it was in one of his songs, he said that every time that Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. And, and, and the reason for that is Satan is defeated. He is a defeated enemy. He just doesn't know it. I can't remember who used this illustration first, but he says it's it's like we're in this this master chess game where the the master is playing and the uh, enemy has been defeated, but there are still moves to be made to get to that point. You know, in the third move, Satan was in checkmate. He just do doesn't know it. And at the end, he will be defeated completely. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, That just the idea that um, because like Zach said, there are some people who seem to have a really weak God with a really strong Satan. I heard an incident where a preacher said that something was going to happen and, and claimed to have some kind of ability to see into the future or whatever. And, and then that didn't happen because the guy he had 
quote unquote prophesied about and said, this guy's going to do these great things and he's going to change the world for God, uh, got killed in a car wreck that week. And his quote was, well, that's because Satan took him too early. Like Satan attacked him and took him. I'm like, so he's more powerful than God? Because I don't think that that's not the way that works. Um, you know, I think it is important to look at the Bible and, and study scripture as a whole. And so when we look at scripture as a whole, we do see the demoniac and this you know man who is, we see so many symptoms of what we kind of see as mental illness now and, and just the cutting himself. And, and, you know, he talks to, to Jesus and says, we are legion and the, he cast out the demons into the pigs. So we see that picture, but then you also see these stories of, you know, Peter here, we look at the book of Job where the devil is at work. He is opposing the people of God. And it's not always in that dramatic fashion of demon possession, you know, because in the story of Peter, he doesn't need to possess Peter. Like nowhere in this story does it sound like the devil took over Peter's body and Peter was not the one making these decisions. He was doing this. It was his sinful nature that was that was at work. Um, but at the same time, this story refers to it as sifting. That, that mm-hmm. You know, that um, Jesus says Satan has asked to sift him. Um, and maybe it's just 2020 and <laughs> the way this year has been. Um but I, I kind of feel like sifting, refining fire, these are kind of themes that we as as pastors seem to keep coming back to. Um, and I think that's because that's where we really, right now, I think we all are kind of feeling that's where God has us. Yeah. You know, we're in a time in our church, in our society, in our country, the world, that has not happened in our lifetime. And while there have been other plagues and, and those kind of things in the past— we're in a really unique situation in, in kind of the way our world is and how interconnected it all is um, that they didn't even have just a hundred years ago, the last time we saw a plague of this proportion. Um, and I do think there is a moment where we have to sit here and say, we are being refined and sifted. And, and because in this story, you know, if you sift it, the end result is actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you sift wheat because you're getting the good stuff out and you're getting rid of the chaff that you yeah. can't eat. Um, so it's not just a matter of, oh, you're being attacked and there's nothing good that come, could come forward from this. In the same way right now, I feel like our church and, and churches and on the whole are going through a time of discomfort. I wouldn't even say persecution or anything like that. We're not there right. yet, but... Um, and as a staff, we've had discussions about the idea of, okay, when we're coming out of this, as we kind of get back on our feet and see what we're going to do, you know, we, we need to make decisions based on how are we doing this? What is, how have we been purified? How have we been refined through this process to be a better church, to be more Christ-like on the other side of it? Well, think about it this way. Even in the Old Testament, we, in coming through the, the New Testament, you have this um, this theme of, of judgment that comes through. Now, we don't like to think about it that way, but but it is because we always say New Testament is, is the age of grace, and, and and so it's not about judgment. But but there's judgment in the New Testament just as there is in the Old Testament. But have you ever noticed in all of the prophets, when, when they were talking about the gloom and doom prophecies and the judgment that was coming, they always said, but there will be a remnant. 
wait, there's going to be hope. God's got a plan. And so what happens is the judgment is just that. It's judgment, but it's also refining. And, and, and what typically happens in, in judgment is that, that those who are truly God's children turn to him more, grow stronger in their relationship with him, trust him more to get through it. And those who are on the fringe or those who are just playing a game, they're the ones who are, who are done away with. That happens in the New Testament as well. That's what happens in the, the early church. You see those like Ananias and Sapphira who are playing games with God, and they get burned in, in the process. You see that in, in Jesus' teaching about Matthew. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 24, he's talking about the, the last days, and he talks about the trials that are coming. And he says, these are just the beginning of sorrows. What's the purpose of that? If, if, if these are just the beginning of sorrows, what's he doing? He's refining his church in preparation for what's about to happen because we've seen this in the church in China. We saw this in the church in Russia when the communists were oppressing and, and were, were pushing the church down and persecuting the Christians. The, the church was pure and, and holy and strong and vibrant. But as soon as in Russia they started allowing the churches to come out and, and be public, all of a sudden you see this influx into the church of people who were playing the game on the fringe and waters down the power of, of the true church. And that's what Satan wants to do. It's the parable of the tares and the wheat. It's the parable of, of, of the, 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 the um, leaven in the, in the, the dough. It's, it's that force that comes in secretly, and that's what Satan wants to do. And he does that in our individual lives. He does that in our families. He does that in our churches, and he's doing that in our nation right now. And that's what's causing the conflict. That's what's causing the problems. That's where we are today. And looking at that, I, th I think it's super important that in this time we're in right now, kind of bringing this back to something we've talked about, it seems like we talk about this a lot, but the the personal posture that we take in our day-to-day -day, like lives and our day-to-day -day walk with Christ and the decisions that we make and the the places that we choose to go the things we choose to participate in and, and things like that um when we were taking the youth through um the study gospel above all by JD Greer he said something very similar to what you said yesterday um in reference to in Matthew when Jesus is saying you know Peter, on this truth, this is where I will build my church and the gates of hell won't be able to stand against it. He, he brought up the analogy. He said, you, you never see anybody in medieval war walking towards the person carrying a gate to bash right. them with a gate. That's right. The gate is a defensive tool. And so this idea that the gates of hell are the defense that we are to be daily going towards. It's, it's not about just sitting on our heels. And, and, and hearing that, it got me thinking. So when I was in high school, I, if, if you've seen me, you'll, you'll laugh about this. I played high school football, right? Um, I'm not athletic. I don't really like football, but I played it because it's, you know, what my friends are doing and I was bored. Played it for about three weeks and realized, yeah, I still hate football. And then I, and then I stopped, but, but I spent the whole summer. Um, I think it was, I think it was the summer before my junior year. Um, I spent that whole summer getting ready for it. I'd never played before, you know, and so we got a personal trainer, a guy who had, you know, graduated, um, 
won a bunch of local awards or whatever and, and played, I think, for JSU. Um, and so he met me on our practice field, you know, one day a week or two days a week, something like that, um, and just ran through drills with me, taught me, you know, this is what you do, this is what you don't do, um, so that I could work on being a defensive lineman. So one of the things that he taught me that that stuck with me, I don't, I don't remember a lot, but I do remember him talking about, like, teaching me how to read the person I was lined up against. And, and he, he, he called it, uh, so the first one he, he, he called bird dogging. And he said that was when you line up on the line and you look at the person in front of you and you can see that their weight is kind of shifted on the back of their heels. You can tell maybe they're tired, maybe they just don't have a good posture or whatever, but their weight is shifted back and they're, they're kind of in a more relaxed stance. He said it's usually those kind of people that are a lot easier to be able to outmaneuver. You can get on them and you can control them where, where you want them to go and you can break through the line. But he also gave the example, he said, you can always tell when a person is too eager to jump because the more weight you put on your front, your knuckles start to get white. And you can tell they are ready to come at you, he said. And it makes it a lot easier to, to simply move to the side and get past them anyway. He said it was all about finding a good balance of not being that person who is just sitting on your heels, but also not be that, being that person who is just the powder keg ready to, ready to jump at the gun and finding that, that good middle ground. Which, to me, looking at it in this context, begs this question. With posture being so important, what posture do we need to be in to, to be the most successful? And how do you think we can get there? Like, if we were to, to give some advice, what kind of posture do you think we would need to be in? And what kind of things can we be doing to get there? Yeah, um, you know, I, I've, I was thinking about that as you were talking. And, you know, they say championships are won in, through defense. Well, I, I've always thought that if you don't score any points, you can't win the game, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you got to have – As an Auburn fan, yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this many times. You, you, you kind of have to have both. You've got mm-hmm. to be defense. You've got to be offense. You can have the best defense in the world, but if your offense can't get past the 50-yard line, LSU, then you're never going to score a point, Right. I, sorry, LSU fans. I know that you guys won the championship, but anyway. And by the way, that's what's caused all of our problems in 2020. LSU won, and that's when it all went downhill from there. So, uh, anyway, so if you if you just do defense and you don't do offense, you're going to lose. If you just do offense and you don't do defense, you're going to lose. So, what do you have to do? You've got to have both. The defense in spiritual warfare is that you have to be prayed up, you have to be uh, worshipped up, you have to be uh, read up. You've got to spend time in the Word. You've got to spend time praying. You've got to spend time uh, worshiping with with God's people so that you'll be ready. All right, that's the defensive portion of this. The offensive portion is is much the same. You've got to do all of those things, but you've got to put it into practice. The praying, spiritual warfare, praying is is unique in that you have to take the authority that God has given you as a child of God and pray against the evil systems that are ruining this world that we're living in, the principalities and the powers. That's what Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. We've got to pray against them because until we pray against them, we're not going to win. Second part of that is prayer is not enough. Listen, you can be the greatest prayer warrior in the world, but you have to put feet to those prayers. And what do I mean by that? You've got to be out there attacking the gates of hell. 
What does that mean exactly? Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Well, what he's saying is that even the gates of hell will not be able to stop his children from marching forward and snatching lost people out of the clutches of Satan. That's that's what he's talking about there. Uh, we have to be about the Father's business of going and making disciples. Um I can't remember if if I told this story at the beginning or or not. Maybe it's because I'm older. Maybe it's because we had problems with the recording and we've had to, <laughs> to do this the second time. Um, but, you know, in college, we had this group of people that uh, wanted to uh, anoint all of the light switches and the uh, electrical outlets because they believed that that's where Satan was getting in. Uh, that's not where Satan gets in. Satan gets in through the, the 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 weaknesses that we have, through the anger, through the apathy, through the the uh, the fear that that we allow to grip us. Those little things that that he tends to build upon. So we have to stand against that, and then we have to, as as I read in First Corinthians fifteen yesterday, we have to stand firm, and we have to do the work of the kingdom, what God has called us to do, and that is to make disciples. Yeah, I know that in our day and time, it's not really popular to speak of, you know, being the army of God and crusaders. And all of that is now, you know, that's a faux pas to even bring up. But there's a reason that God uses this kind of militaristic language for us in the fact that we are at war. This is not um, something that we can just sit back. You know, you mentioned one of apathy being one of, um, these symptoms. And I think so often our problem, you mentioned communism and those countries that have oppressed the church for years. You know, right now I'm, I'm finishing up a church history class and it's looking at all of the, the beginning of the early church. And really the times when people are being martyred, the church is being oppressed, the church is still growing. It's still exploding. Now, when the church gets this kind of political sanctioning, that's actually when things start to fall apart. You know, um, it was uh, Patrick who is, you know, kind of famous for for taking the gospel to Ireland. I was reading about him last night and the fact that his dad was a deacon uh, in the early church or whatever in, in kind of Roman Britain. So uh, when Constantine took over the Roman Empire and brought in the church, one of the things he did was he said, Hey, if you are a church official, you no longer pay taxes. It was the only thing in the entire empire that got you a break from taxes. And so Patrick actually in his kind of uh, testimony talks about the idea. He's like, my dad was a deacon, um, but I didn't really grow up knowing God at all. And it's not until he gets kidnapped and taken to Ireland and is basically being oppressed that he realizes how much he depends on God and all of that. And so it's looking at that. It's like his dad you can kind of draw the conclusion. His dad did it for the tax purposes right? because he had another job that had a lot of tax liability. And then what offsets that? Well, I can be a deacon and voila, my taxes are gone. So, you know, so often, um, and we in the United States may be the worst about this and maybe in the South even worse. We are so used to the church being in a position of power and um, prestige and when we see that not happening, we have a tendency to kind of the sky is falling panic. And 
know, we say, oh, man, I mean, things aren't the way they used to be. But at the same time, if we look historically through the church, and even not that long ago, you look at China, you know, right now, actually, um, I was reading uh, God Smuggler, the book by Brother Andrew, mm-hmm. and he talks about the different, he went to like every one of the communist countries back when the, the Iron Curtain was up. And he actually talked about some of the worst ones were not the ones that banned the name of God. They weren't the ones that banned the Bible. They were the ones that went in the middle and they said, oh, you can have a church. We'd love for you to have a church. Come on over here. We'll even give you a government building to have the church in. But then they oppressed the ability for people to actually freely talk about God. That was where they, that was even worse than not being able to talk about God because people felt comfortable that it was there, but never were able to really worship. And so, um, you know, I just think about that apathy and how if we're not careful, we can almost look to the government or some kind of government regulation. Um, you know, this week we've had a couple deci- or multiple decisions in the last two weeks from the Supreme Court that we would not agree with as Christians. But if we're looking for the Supreme Court to do our job as Christians, we're going to it's going to fail every time. You know, the Bible never says like the, the gates of hell won't stand against the Supreme Court. That's not what he's talking about, you know, but we as individual believers should be the ones fighting the fight, carrying it forward. Um, and yeah, that apathy is really one of the most dangerous things that we can have. It's just that idea of like, well, it's, everything's okay. You know, Forrest, we're, we're looking forward to the 4th of July weekend and always a great time. Everybody enjoys the family gatherings, the barbecues, the time at the beach. Things may be a little different this year because of the COVID-19 Virus, but but everybody's looking forward to celebrating the birthday of our great nation. My fear is that this could be one of the last birthdays that we celebrate of this nation, and and I don't mean to be a as I said yesterday a purveyor of gloom and doom, but in reality, when you read the the, the Bible, the prophecies of the end times, you find nowhere in it anything that even remotely resembles the United States of America. You can find images that equate to Russia. You can find images that equate to that equate to China, to Libya, to Ethiopia, to Iran. Um, but there's nothing in the prophecies that have any semblance of the United States of America. Now, what that tells me is that somewhere before the end times, the United States of America is no longer a player on the world stage. I fear that's where we're headed. And I believe that because we are turning our back more and more on God every day through the Supreme Court decisions, through the legislation that that is going uh, through our Congress. And if we depend on them to do the, the work, we have no hope. What my prayer is, is that the church will rebuke the apathy, the spirit of indifference, and that we'll fall on our face and and begin to cry out for revival and spiritual awakening so that we can have another generation. You say, well, what's the purpose? If, If the United States isn't going to be there in the end, why do we want to prolong the suffering? Because of my grandchildren, your children, and your children's children. Because if we don't have spiritual awakening soon in this country, we're going to see millions upon millions of our children and young people find their comfort and their hope in everything but Jesus Christ. And that's why we have to do something now. We've got to take a stand now 
or we're going to find ourselves headed in the path where we lose this generation that's coming up. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. Reading through the Old Testament, um, it has struck me how many times that you have a prophet who comes and says, listen, the judgment of God is, is on you, you know, and yet when they repent and they, you know, fall as broken men before God, he then removes that judgment and says, okay, now usually what's really happened is that has been delayed, right. not done away with. It, right. It's not that that judgment will never happen. It's that you in your obedience have gained favor with God for a time yep. and that God's purposes are still going to be played out the way he's already prepared you know, prophesied. So, um, but at the same time, yeah, you look at it and say, I want for my children to have a life that is good and, and where there is not persecution, um, you know, but at the end of the time, I want them to be people who love God and, and um, are Christ followers right. in every way. Uh, I want to talk real quick. We don't have a lot of time, but about fear. You, you mentioned that in one of the the symptoms and you mentioned that, you know, we, we don't have, you know, the police are not knocking on the door of our church. They're not coming to arrest us for talking about God. And yet, most of us are consumed with fear of not being popular or maybe not saying the right thing. I mean, now we, we live in a culture where we're a soundbite culture and mm -hmm. the slightest thing wrong on social media or those kind of things can, can turn into a firestorm. Um, and so... I think there is this fear that's kind of gripped us. But we know that, like you said, we have victory. It, it might not be today, but we have victory. Um, and you mentioned earlier that we see this in discussing the martyrs. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's an important thing to realize. And and <laughs> it it steps on our toes to think about it, but you're like, okay, so I'm scared to talk to my coworker about Jesus. And I've been there. I mean, I'm not, this is definitely not me pointing a finger at anybody. Um, I don't know if I told this story before, but there was a time where Karen, my lovely, encouraging, sweet, very wise wife came to me and said, listen, as much as you love Jesus and as much as you could talk to a brick wall, I don't understand why you're not telling more people about Jesus. And that was one of those moments I had to be like, oof, that hurt, you know, and and yet it was true. And yeah. so to see that and, and to realize how many people were coming into my life that I was not sharing the gospel with, and I by far am not great at that now, uh, not the way I should be. Um, but yeah, we realize so often you're like, man, I, I just, what if I say the wrong thing or, or what, what if they react poorly? At the end of the day, no matter how bad it goes, if to die is gain, I mean, there is nothing they can do to you that is going to separate you from Christ. It's, there's nothing that they can do to us. I mean, you look at these stories of, of uh, I think that's the beauty and, and maybe it's because we're all three kind of history nerds. So we kind of nerd out about this, but you look at history and to me, it's so challenging and encouraging because you have guys who did their most amazing work for God in prison cells mm -hmm. and, you know, while being persecuted in a degree we can't even imagine. Um, and they did that in, despite all of those, those kind of things against them. Um, and so I, I think to me, yeah, this was a really kind of 
eye-opening look at like our if our fear, if we're living in fear because we're saying, oh, this world's falling apart or I can't do anything, we're ignoring the fact that God has already gotten the victory. We're just working through it. And no matter how bad it goes, if we get to be in glory with heaven with with God in heaven, like that's a great thing. Yeah. Well, you know, here here's the thing. We have a choice to make. We can be afraid that we're going to offend somebody with what we say. But but the choice is this. Not whether we're going to offend them, but over what we're going to offend them. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. If we are living the Christian life, the world is going to hate us. There's absolutely no question about that. So if we're going to please God, we're going to be hated by the world. Just accept it. Go with it. Don't try to be hated. Don't, don't do things <laughs> to make people hate you. Um, love them, but stand firm on the word. And when they do hate you, just accept it as, as Paul did. Count it all joy to suffer for the cause of Christ. Yeah, I think that um, just so that I was thinking about the fact that to tell someone the truth is the most loving thing you can do for them. But the truth is not always said in a loving way. And so that's where we need to land is that we need to make sure that when we're telling the truth, we're doing it in a loving fashion. Um, You know, we can tell the truth and do it from a place of maybe arrogance or, or, or one of those kind of prideful. And that's, not glorifying to God. Yeah. But at the same time to just ignore the truth because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings or we don't want to be ostracized for it is the most unloving thing we could ever do. Um, you know, we should, we similar to the fact that we don't like to talk about spiritual warfare. We don't like to talk about hell. That's right. And honestly, I think partly because if we don't talk about it, we don't think about it. We don't have to imagine what it's like. Um, but if we really comprehended what hell was like, we'd step on everybody's toes yep. to tell them the truth because we love them enough that we don't want them to go there. That's right. Um, all right. Well, that was a lighthearted conversation full of... Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the first version was actually a lot more fun than the second version. So I wish you guys could have heard us the first version. We were great. Yeah, it was actually we we had... Drummed up a couple of product placements. We were going to get some sponsors yeah. out of this deal. And yeah, the second so. time, we just got rolling in some theology and some heavy stuff. And yeah. uh, I hope you enjoyed it. it again, it, this is the stuff that it's good to, to work out as a group to, to talk about these things. And um, if you ever have questions, get them to us. We'd love to answer them uh, on air and figure out how we work through these things. But right now, we've come to that time that we cannot avoid. We have to draw a question. That's... All right, Brother Ben, it's your turn to draw one. I'm out of week, so I guess it's it's my turn here. So, okay, promising. Yeah. Would you rather be forced to marry a monarch and live in a palace for the rest of your life, or wander in the desert for forty years? Well, I, I don't know about forced, but I did marry a woman that's basically a queen and perfect in every way. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to go monarch on this one because, uh, as you could probably tell from my physique, I like to eat well. And uh, 
monarchs tend to do that very well. Desert wandering, not so much. So that's my deep theological reasoning. <laughs> I'd agree with you. Um, to quote uh, Anakin Skywalker, um, I hate sand. Uh, it, it's coarse and it gets everywhere. Um, and so I would be miserable in the desert surrounded by nothing but sand for 40 years. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm taking taking the monarchy all the way. Well, guys, I, I'm disappointed in you because I'm married to such a wonderful woman that to be married to anybody else would be like wandering in the desert for 40 years. And so I will choose, if I can't be married to Sonia, to be married to, to wander in the desert for 40 years. Wow. See, and, and that's why uh, he gets to teach the marriage classes because we're just learning how to, how to be that devoted. So I'm sorry, sweetie, that I had to marry the queen of wherever, but... Uh, We'll make it better next time. All right. So next week we will uh, explore more of how we can fight uh, the good fight. And uh, we look forward to, to exploring that together. So uh, see you next week.